and welcome to Politics on Draft with me, James Tabor. And me, Kartik Sawney. And thank you for joining us again. If this is your first time, then thank you for choosing us to be your companion for this evening, afternoon or lunch or whenever you're listening uh, to it. Kartik, how are you doing today? I'm good. Once again, I'm shocked by introduction. Companion is an interesting choice um yeah i mean i don't want to think of uh our listeners as consumers of us because that just feels too i don't know like i don't know i feel yes but i also don't want to think of them as my companions james (laughs) anyway political companions in 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 that respect what are you drinking today james i'm drinking a it's a white wine called yaland's and I do like Yalens. I've had them before. It's a Sauvignon Blanc from Marlborough, New Zealand. And it's very nice. It's got some sharp citrus notes to it and works well with some fish or light pasta. I'm drinking water. Um, <laughs> it's got a hint of copper in it, um, probably because we need to clean our pipes out. Um, Is it tap water? Yeah. Ah, uh, you see, I think tap water's got a lot of taste to it, depending on where you go. Uh, yeah, predominantly shit. Um, <laughs> it's, it's because I have a lot of work to do uh, after the podcast, so I can't be drinking. Otherwise, Ooh. I'm just right shit. So, <laughs> yes. But yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know about you, but before we get into it, I just I feel like it's been absolutely ages since we recorded. Like it's I feel it's felt like a very it does, long. Week. It does. It does feel like that. It does feel like that, and I think it's because not a whole lot has happened well i think a whole lot has happened but by current Relative standards to, yeah 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 not a whole lot has happened it's not been as sort of right prime minister's resigned home secretary's resigned chancellor of the exchequer shat himself you know it's it's not as consistent as it is now uh, as it has been in the past but anyway let's get right into it brazil just finished their second round of presidential elections and the incumbent populist right-wing president, Jair Bolsonaro, has officially lost. It was a very close election with the ex-president Lula da Silva winning with 50.9% of the vote. Mm. After a couple of days of radio silence amid concerns over Bolsonaro supporters calling for a military uprising, Bolsonaro officially came out yesterday, that was not yesterday, it was Tuesday, um, we're recording on a Thursday, and declared that he felt quote-unquote, it's over. However, Bolsonaro appeared to send a different message with his deliberately ambiguous two-minute address the same day. In it, the right-wing populist called the demonstration the fruit of indignation and a feeling of injustice about how the electoral process has played out. Peaceful protests will always be welcome. Bolsonaro did also say, though, that his destruction was not welcome, but obviously the actions, which we will cover have been very, very different. Um, some hardcore supporters reportedly took these words as a call for them to stay on the streets. So they have, I don't know the situation right now, but on Tuesday they were blocking up the streets completely. James, we've talked about this with Brazilians as well as uh, we've talked about this amongst each other. What do you think the next two months look like for Brazil? Do you see stability or do you see some dangerous actions? Well, it's really hard. I mean, because this follows a very similar narrative as Trump, uh, Trump's loss in the 2020 November 
um, election. And I think everybody, because especially because uh, Trump's court case, which we spoke about last week, is going on at the moment, there's this kind of feeling of nostalgia of, oh god really hope this doesn't happen again thankfully nobody died as a result of the capital riots but yeah obviously we you know you can't use that as a precedent of oh yeah no nothing bad will happen um yeah currently you know a day i know that i was reading that a day after the election truck drivers who support bolsonaro uh closed over 300 roads in 25 states uh and in the federal district um yeah, they, and they kind of, they claimed it was an effort to stop Lula from becoming president. I don't know if that was a sort of literal sense of blocking the roads to stop him from getting him anywhere or if it was a, a kind of metaphorical. I, I think it's it's really difficult because I've heard lots of different um, stories. I've heard, because uh, to give you a statistic, uh, from January 2019 to June 2022, political violence in Brazil has grown by a staggering 335%. Um, yet the 45 homicides for political violence were recorded in the first half of 2022. So I, 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 th I feel as if when trying to work out if there's been a if there will be an increase in political violence as a result of this i i almost want to say well there already is kind of a lot of political violence no you're right we we probably can't speculate what's going to happen over the next two months i hope it's not the same as what happened in america um or with worse, the capital riots but since the election campaign began in august 2022 there have been significant increases in violence as you said james Mm. I've got an Amnesty International survey in front of me and that found yep. that in the three months leading up to the first round on the 2nd of October, there was at least one case of political violence every two days. And 88% yeah. of the cases were in September alone. So, yeah, th I mean, these are murders, threats against voters, physical assaults and restrictions on freedom of movement for candidates, as you said. But I'm going to read out some notable cases because I've, I've got some yeah, stats yeah, yeah. and figures in front of me. So in June... A Bolsonaro supporter was arrested after throwing fireworks against Lula supporters during a political act of the Workers' Party in Rio de Janeiro. In July, a city guard and a Workers' Party act activist was murdered. That a city guard and Workers' Party act is one person. Um, they were he was murdered for political reasons during his birthday party at a community center located in the state of Par uh, Parana. I have I probably butchered that pronunciation. I'm really sorry. No, I think that sounds right. Uh, a federal prison officer was arrested after storming the victim's party, shouting that he was a supporter of Bolsonaro and shouting out the victim's name, Aruda. The shooter was also injured during the attack due to self-defense exercise by the victim. But based on an incorrect statement from the local police, some media outlets mistakenly report that the men killed each other, which wasn't true. But yeah. And there were also cases of voter suppression very very recently this this is what was really alarming to me so on tw on the 27th of september it was reported that some you know public transport companies most of them bus companies um whose mayors were bolsonaro allies could either suspend some bus operations or claim a lack of funding for free travel passes that in brazil they usually give to voters who are unable to get to the polling booths on election day so the poor and the extremely poor voters, which predominantly supported Lula, 
they were the main target of this strategy. And mm. since they could only resort to public transportation, they tried to cut that off. But eventually, the federal Supreme Court intervened, ensuring that cities would not hold free passes. The Bolsonaro campaign still attempted to intervene, asking the Superior Electoral Court to immediately block free travel passes, arguing that the previous decision will affect city finances. The Electoral Court said, no, the city incurs no cost as a result of this. So, this is, But this is only one example you know, as of 21st of October, there had been 1,112 reports of voter intimidation in 2022 in Brazil. And this has gone up by a thousand since the 2018 elections. So I think I've covered a lot of cases. James, what I want to ask you is what is it about? I think everyone can fairly concede mm. that this is populism. I would want you to define what populism is. But what is it about populism that leads to such extreme cases of violence and voter suppression? Isn't populism sort of supposed to be for the people? Is it to do with populism itself? Is it a combination of Bolsonaro and populism? Or is this a, you know, is this just Bolsonaro? I don't think it's unique to him. We've seen cases of violence in the US culminating in the Capitol riots. So, yeah, what do you, what do you think about mm. it? Explain populism for us. Yeah, I just before I go into populism, I just want to say that with regards to kind of volatility within Brazil, I think when we talk about potential increases in volatility, I just simply believe that, that there hasn't been a time of stability in Brazil for potentially about the last hundred years. I mean, we yeah. went through the many years of military dictatorship, which then ended by a coup d'etat i mean if you if it's a coup d'etat that ends a military dictatorship I put, that's pretty big red flags for instability that it has to take a coup d'etat in order to try and throw away a regime um i would and then uh, one second but you can yeah. but it is also a fact that whilst whilst lula was president there was economic growth you know the wage gap narrowed people were better off under lula yeah, but people being better off doesn't necessarily mean stability. I mean, like take for example the USSR. You know, people under the USSR were considerably better than what they were in nineteen ninety in the nineteen nineties under Boris Yeltsin. But they, you know, obviously the, the times the times were different. You know, you could argue that under the USSR it wasn't as stable as it may have been in Yeltsin in terms of things like human rights. So I I think it's a bit more nuanced than potentially just sort of like an objective, oh, people are better off, hence stability. I mean, under Lula, there's a lot of corruption, and that's something that, you know, has been very much brought to the table. But then there's also been corruption under Bolsonaro with regards to um, Lula's, you know, to, what was it like 100-day sentencing to... Uh, uh, to prison, which I'm sure you, you were going to get onto at some point. There was an interesting case, actually. It was reported. Again, this is very supposed. We don't know how true it is. But, um, it was reported that when Bolsonaro went to meet Joe Biden, he attempted mm. to encourage him to have some sort of influence on the election. I mean, that is what, corrupt. Well, Biden having an influence on, he, and and yeah. Biden just sort of dodged the question and said, you know. You know, we we expect free and fair elections in Brazil. Ah, that's about the first time that uh, that America has said no to intervening in South America. <laughs> yeah, politics. I know, right? Um, I know, right? But, but let's let's take it back to what you said about uh, what you said about populism, and I I do want to do a, a completely separate sort of uh, podcast on populism because I think it's a really interesting subject. 
What is populism? Now, populism has many different sort of manifestations. Some people believe it's a tactic. Some believe it's its own ideology. Some people um, believe that it's a sort of political style. Um, but the very heart of populism is effectively the elite versus the masses, i.e. the people. And there's this kind of idea of the people being like the heartland and this was this has been sort of cited in much of the literature, but the heartland being the kind of almost quite like a feudal society of, you know, like people being very together, you know, being very neighbor like giving each other a lending hand when they need it and stuff like that. And and that's what populism kind of tries to exploit is that kind of, you know, the, the current elite and not working for. Uh, the people they are the establishment we need to bring down the establishment and you know bring sovereignty back to the people we saw that you know massively during brexit and throughout a lot of ukip's campaign as well as the brexit party's campaign and uh, we're seeing it a lot in in europe now there's kind of two big factions of populism we've got the populist radical right which mainly operates in europe but arguably you know has operated elsewhere case in it's not uh, arguable it's 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 yeah you know it's played a role in brazil Play, obviously yeah, it's yeah. clearly played a role from 2016 to 2020 well the and then in america south south america has historically been more on the kind of left-wing side of mm -hmm. uh populism and bolsonaro is probably the biggest outlier in terms of factions of populism um so with regards to you asked what is it about populism that leads to such extreme cases of violence and voter suppression? Effectively, it's this kind of polarization. It's, you know, trying to get the people very angry about it. Effectively, it's this man, man, I think it's Manishan idea. That's it, Manishan idea that there are good people and evil people. It's a bit like um, Nietzsche as well. There are good people and evil people. And what populist figures like Bolsonaro will say is that there are evil people out there which are embodied by the elite and it's up to the people to take back control that rhetoric that you heard with the brexit campaign and overthrow the elite in a kind of sort of you know big constitutional you know bringing it back to the people kind of ideal now obviously this is the kind of brand that bolsonaro he kind of enacted this although there was a heavy emphasis on nationalism just for a bit of information bolsonaro was actually a military general within the uh within the military dictatorship and so he was very nostalgic about the dictatorship mm. um years however and i guess this kind of contributes to the more kind of tactical element of populism he kind of tried to embody this oh yeah you know we're beyond the dictatorship you know i i, I do have this belief in human rights however the amount of times he would say that the military is a good tool in order to push through policy i mean <laughs> i think that's beyond the realms of authoritarianism that's sort of bordering on the line of fascism um and so yeah, I, he is a very unique case of populism. But I think that the, the simple fact is that populism creates anger and it create and often um, individuals will fabricate this sense of crisis that exists within the system. That's pretty much how Brexit came to happen was this kind of sense of, oh, you know, we are in a crisis where the establishment are disconnected with 
the people. I mean, Brexit happened and the establishment is still disconnected from the people. So clearly, you know, it's not really done that much. And the same is kind of in the sense of Brazil that Bolsonaro came in and, you know, corruption still existed. And so there's still that disconnect with the elites and, and the people. That's very interesting. I want to bring us on to our next couple of points. But before you say that, I, I also mm. want to talk about briefly um, what kind of government we can expect in Brazil over the next four years. Um, I don't think we have any Brazilian listeners, but um, we have some Brazilian friends at university yeah. who might well be listening. But um, Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I thought someone had just walked into your room. No. No. Um, <laughs> We will expect, well, not we will expect, I expect that a lot of the stuff that you would expect from Lula in terms of very left-wing policies, he won't necessarily be able to carry those out. The Senate and I believe it's what they call the Congress in um, Brazil is still quite right-wing and he will have to make a lot of concessions. He will almost have to operate as a centrist president in order to get his legislative reforms through so yeah that's what i want to say uh but yeah i think i I think yeah just quickly before we do go on to suela i just want to say with lula that you know it's it's quite interesting because and something this is just something that completely came to me but i saw a, a an article on this recently is that we seem to be in this age where we're seeing a lot of really old leaders. I mean, like for instance, take Lula, he's 77. Um, yeah, yeah, he is 77. And so, you know, he's quite an old person. It's the same with Joe Biden as well, quite old. You know, Trump was very old as well. Um, and so we're starting to see this kind of like weird sort of, I guess, like, and I saw an article that labeled it as a kind of paternal based presidential system where we're seeing like, very old people being put in charge which i mean is quite interesting from a from a sort of british perspective we've almost seen the kind of opposite in the terms of well you you say that but i'm thinking about keir starmer and you say old keir starmer's not old per se Mm. i think he's i don't know he's exactly but i think he's in his 50s um He's he symbolises a sort of old guard of politics. He's not that exciting. He's almost a John Major type of figure, um, mm. and yeah, he, it's it's sort of return to normality, return to safety, and it's a safe pair of hands kind of argument. To what extent that's true is debatable. Mm. I don't know to what extent Joe Biden is a safe pair of hands. I don't know that much about Luda to say he is a safe pair of hands. But I mean, I call the sensible countries, quote unquote i.e. Sweden, Finland, they've elected quite young um, yeah. leaders. So, I mean, it's it's a contrast. I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all when it comes to populism and post-populism. But, then, but Sweden's um, quite an interesting place. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Sweden's quite an interesting place. And also Denmark's a very interesting place at the moment. Denmark just had their elections recently. And uh, they went with, the, I think, either it's a social democratic or... Yeah, I think it's the social democratic party won as per was expected, but actually something that was really quite interesting about Denmark was that the third highest party, I believe, was actually a newly formed populist party. And I know this week in in one of my populism seminars, we were talking about sort of why that is. And I've got some friends who live in Denmark and um, 
they don't live in Copenhagen and they basically say that the tax formula doesn't work for them because, you know, we hear these big things about how Scandinavian tax is so good. They get it back. The roads are, you know, pristine or whatever, but actually they, because they don't live in Copenhagen, that the, the tax contributions that they give, they don't really see that well because their town isn't really bringing in much tourism and so there's that kind of it's a kind of misconception. We're very envious of their tax formulas, but actually their tax formulas aren't working for a lot of people. Just something, just something I wanted to to mention um, to mention there. But we'll have to see. We'll have to see what um, Lula because it's, it's like with America, um, Lula doesn't actually get inaugurated until January, I think. Uh, basically, yes, yes, you're right. So, I think so, it's January first. Actually, they do it on the year. Oh well, wow, okay. So yeah, we'll ha- we'll have to see um, what happens there. Um, I-, I I'm actually more interested as to what he does with Brazil because I agree with you. He will have to kind of have this kind of centristness to it because there are still a lot of people who are very pro Bolsonaro and are very angry with this election, and you know they will move past that at some point, but the policy the feelings the, the the kind of the type of politics that they want to see will still remain in terms of the feeling that they what they want will still remain and you know how he how he plays into into those hands will be quite interesting but uh before we go to swell brother we're just going to take a quick break and uh yeah we'll see you in a second Hello and welcome back to our sort of second part of the podcast. Uh, we're going to throw things back to uh, domestic politics. Um, we said earlier that not much has happened, I think, in the grand scheme of things. I think that that's somewhat uh, correct. But, you know, still, politics continues. And the politics of this week uh, falls back to the lovely Suella Braverman. Yeah, I say that almost falls with... back to the politics of yeah. the <laughs> And... Um, Suella Braverman, just to, to give a quick recap, got re- reappointed as the Home Secretary. She was uh, she she was sacked. I think that she resigned uh, at the end of Liz Truss's um, uh, tenure due to uh, leaking um, government and secret documents to a backbench MP, uh, which she felt was a reason to resign, but also due to other reasons to do this trust that we spoke about at the time. Uh, Rishi Sunak, in his appointment of cabinet, brought her back. And now she is back in the limelight due to a watchdog that went to a um, de- detention centre, holding centre for uh, migrant processing. Mm. Uh, in- I really I really hate that term, detention centre. Yeah. Um, it really, really, yeah. We're coming on yeah, to lighter I, politics later, but this is, again, something yeah. that really pisses me off. Um, but there, there's been a processing issue there where there's been a lot of people backlogged and the centre is completely, you know, at capacity. A watchdog went there and said that the conditions are really, really bad, potentially infringing on human rights. Uh, there's It's disease-stricken and they literally are on the brink. Uh, This is because of uh, the up to 40,000 people who have crossed the channel in order to uh, seek asylum. I'm going to stop you right there. 40,000 is not a true figure. Is it not? It's 30,000 since January. Oh, okay. She said 40,000 at at her urgent question, but Mm. 
she's actually wrong. So she's anyway, checking shit. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, and and in in this has been a a big amount of controversy as to one Suella Braverman's uh, competency at the fact that you know the processing is so bad and she's let this situation um, happen. But then she was called to an urgent question uh, this week as to, you know, how the situation has got to, to how it is. And her statement was, well, just as baffling. Uh, Kartik, do you want to talk about her statement? Yes. So Suella Braveman claimed that the south coast of England is being invaded by asylum seekers. She actually used the word invaded. And I just want to sort of read out the legal definition of invasion. The legal definition of invasion is an enroachment upon the rights of another, the incursion of an army for conquest or plunder. Now, Suella Braveman used to be a lawyer, arguably not a very good one, considering she gets legal definitions so badly wrong in uh, Parliament. But yeah, so she thinks that either you know, she's got the word invasion wrong, or she thinks that asylum seekers are once again enroaching upon the rights of other people and are an army set upon conquest or plunder of the nation. She's absolutely... I'm speechless. She has no idea what she's going on about. Um, And the fact of the matter is, the UK per capita receives much, much, much less asylum applications compared to any other European country. Cyprus received the most as 153 per 10,000 people in the population. We received, do you want to guess the number, James? Go on, Uh, I have no clue, go on, you tell me. Go on, give give us a guess. Of how many? Asylum applications per capita, per 10,000 population that we get. Uh, I literally, I I, I literally, go ahead and tell me because I'm- It's eight. eight. We are being, quote unquote, invaded by eight asylum applicants per 100 by 100,000 people per 10,000 people oh, well. <laughs> right yeah so she has no idea what she's going on about that's, that's that by the way that is 0.008 percent or <laughs> so yeah <laughs> and the fact of the matter is these are people who are escaping poor economies which it's okay to want to escape a poor economy and go to another country for job opportunities or for the betterment of your family. War, persecution, and I completely acknowledge that it is dangerous to come across the channel in small boats, but there are, it's, again, there are not as many small boat crossings as this government likes to portray. Number one, there is a problem that needs to be fixed, but that problem is primarily because it costs so much for a genuine asylum application from the country that you are wanting to come come into. It's cheaper. It's cheaper in, if you want to if you want to cross the channel in a small boat. That's why people are encouraged to do so. So it's a it, it's a direct influence of government policy. It's not. It's yeah. Sorry. Go on, James. <laughs> so so when I said this week that you know, kind of her justification of this kind of, you know, um, I guess one could kind of call like non-empathetic response from government is that, you know, we need to deter criminal sex trafficking or just human trafficking gangs from exploiting 
this route into the UK and the stuff. And I mean, look, you know, obviously a, there are a lot of there are a lot of people who are crossing the channel who are seeking asylum due to, you know, and are vulnerable because they are escaping persecution, they're escaping war in their country, etc., etc. Yet we know, Suella, that there will be gangs, international gangs, who are exploiting this. You know, this isn't something that we are opposing you. And she likes to give this kind of rhetoric that that the left or the woke people are on the side of criminal you know, gangs and stuff. And and the, th the funny fact is that nobody's saying that. Nobody's saying we should let absolutely everybody who comes onto the coast, you know, come into the UK and, you know, completely, you know, benefit from the system. Nobody's saying just, that, but I, for some reason... I just want to she, add a number. She... I just want to add a number to what you're saying. Because, yeah, yes, yeah. you're right. Nobody is saying that we are on the side of these criminal gangs that are sending people across the channel in small boats. We, we were quoting a figure from GDP. Just to contextualise it, Colin Yeo, a barrister and author specialising in immigration, he pointed out that the numbers arriving by small boats are lower compared to those granted through official schemes. So a total of 75,764 visas were issued in the last year under the Hong Kong scheme for British nationals. But in mm. the last nine months, almost double that number entered the UK through the Ukrainian scheme. Over the last year, a quarter of re refugee arrivals into the, into the UK came by small boats or lorries. But the exact figure, small boat arrivals accounted for half of the 60,000 60, asylum claims. Overall, the numbers arriving by small boat are low compared with those granted through official schemes. Yeah. So it's, you know, the official schemes is still a problem which needs to be fixed and needs to be made more accessible. But the way that they're going about it is completely wrong. And, and, and the rhetoric so is completely wrong. To kind of to kind of add to, to to that, I mean, look, I regardless of the kind of you know, we're entering a a period of great economic difficulty. I mean, the Bank of England just uh, released just ups the interest rate to three percent today, and have said that effectively a recession is now in place, and that um, we're they are effectively predicting a two year slump, which is arguably very 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 much bigger than the two thousand and seven to eight financial. Um, crash. So we're in for a very tough time. I'm very worried about just simply, you know, because our country, I'm just talking very objectively here, has a capacity in terms of what we can provide to people. And that, like, already is very, 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 very stressed. And, you know, the simple fact is, is that, you know, we've got people coming to our country seeking refuge and seeking asylum and our country is not in a very good state at the moment so i'm worried in terms of you know how we can provide for them as well as you know the just the the, the kind of day-to-day -day issues of how we can even provide uh for ourselves and so they really need to get a grip of no no no, no. Um, you know, okay our country is in a bad state i concede that but to what extent we can provide for them is again you know it's this is an argument that's driven by a lot of very very far right people for anti-immigration and i know you're not doing that james but mm. it's there are lots of claims made by the government about you know we need to fill this fiscal hole in the economy and i want to correct myself that later 
earlier earlier in the uh, podcast in in another episode i'd said that you know labor is going to face the same problems in terms of the fiscal hole and stuff like that again it's a different form of economics that labor would bring and this fiscal hole and balancing the budget is a very very tory idea and yes it would be irresponsible to completely ignore the amount of debt that the country has amassed but once but there are methods in place that we can employ in order to provide for a number of people the priori priorities mm. of this government is just completely off of where they need to be yeah and i, I actually, just I actually weeks ago we were just lifting the cap on bankers bonuses yeah and i actually think that and in terms of what i was saying about kind of what we can offer to people i'm not suggesting for a moment that oh, we don't have the capability to facilitate, you know, asylum seekers, so we should, you know, completely, you know, close off the border or anything like that. I mean, what we can offer for asylum seekers is, you know, so much better from where they're coming from. Um, and in a way, I feel that Britain should kind of almost relish in the fact that we are so sought after in, in that regard. I know there'll be very far right people who say, no, 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 we should keep it all out, but that's a you know, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But uh, my worry is, is whether or not the government has the actual competence to to actually, you know, make this a good environment. Uh, yeah, for no, people. absolutely. absolutely. That, that's, where, that's where my worry is. It's not to do with the actual, you know, the, the sort of increase in... in I can say that your worry is the truth because mm. they don't have the competence. There was a massive issue that, which has largely been ignored by the media, that brave men denied ignoring legal advice to procure more accommodation because yeah, the temporary holding centre at Manston was so overcrowded. So there were 4,000 people living in Manston. The accommodation, the maximum capacity for it is 1,600, 1,600. Yep. And the design capacity is 1,000. Mm. So and it's an issue of competence, not well. resources. Mm. I mean, we, you know, if you count competence as a resource, yeah, we're massively deficient but yeah and i i, I to be honest I, I feel very sorry for the um civil servants working in the home office at the moment one because i think they all know that their leader the home secretary swella braverman is incompetent she's a national threat due to her leaking of emails from her private email account to backbenchers i mean you know <laughs> I'm almost a little bit relieved it's a backbencher. You know, God knows, you know, who else it could have been. But well, no, still... apparently she leaked it accidentally to a member of the public. It oh, was almost was... a thick of this scenario. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, then, well, then there you go. You know, she is a national threat. Her, her MPs know it. Her civil servants know it. I'm just thinking we had Pretty Patel for ages, who, to be honest, seems like... Rishi Sunak knows it. We had, we, had, we had Pretty Patel before Suella Bravman, which seems like a fucking gem compared to Suella Bravman, <laughs> uh, which said something. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, when on earth are we going to get a Home Secretary that's actually competent about the ideas of national security and actually trying to maintain international law with regards to asylum seekers and immigrants? Because currently the situation is dire. And well, you know what I'm going to say. If you just have to look across yeah, to the I other side it. of the bench, who's the shadow Home Secretary who I think is incredibly competent? Yvette Cooper. She's Yvette brilliant. Cooper. But we're not going to get into politics in terms of party politics. We can oh, argue for it's Kartik, isn't it? No, because, <laughs> no, because, because, <laughs> but no, because I think this is serious. 
yeah. and we have a jokey topic coming up mm. in, a, in a second. But yeah, you're right. Pretty Patel does seem like a gem compared to this. And the fact of the matter is, Rishi Sunak knows that Solo Braverman is incompetent, dangerously right wing, and pandering. And Rishi Sunak is pandering so much to the ERG mm. because we, he's doing this to to stop an election happening, stop a rebellion happening. And, and apparently, will, apparently, there are already about five MPs that have already sent in a letter of no confidence. And we will be talking about the future of the party and whether or not that's dominated by the ERG very, very soon with a very special guest. But I'm going to keep that um, a little bit secret at the moment because that's still in uh, the works. Mm. What Rishi Sunak uh, will do is yet to be known. I he he was pictured this morning handing out poppies uh, with the uh, British uh, Legion um, in Westminster Station. And I don't know if you saw my tweet, Carty, but I basically said, you know, very, very nice. Can you please sort out your, your migrant situation at the moment? Because I think there are bigger things to be concerned about than selling yeah. poppies to people. Not that, that, not that I'm undermining the work that that charity does towards yeah. um, people who have gone through war. Let's yeah, move if, on. If, but no, no, no. But, but if there was a yeah, backlog yeah. of one hundred twenty-two thousand people waiting mm. for their initial decision on their asylum application, I, you know, think it's no matter how, happen. no matter yeah. how significant the goal of the charity is, I think I would still be in my office trying to work it out. But yeah, let's move on to the last topic, and it's a bit, it's a more of a fun topic. Um, you're not very serious about this, uh, Kartik. I did tell you that. Come on, we need to we need to try and find some sort of like I don't know academic kind of response to this. But uh, let let's talk about um, let's talk about the former health secretary Matt Hancock who has made an incredibly ballsy decision this week, if you get that little reference. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Matt Hancock, um, who was previously the health secretary and is the MP for West Suffolk, who clearly feels that, um, you know, the privilege of serving as the MP for West Suffolk, uh, yeah, he doesn't feel the privilege anymore uh, because he's decided that he wants to go on to uh, I'm a celebrity. Get me, Get out, me of out of here! Sorry. And, and it's 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 funny because he's not really a celebrity. Um, he, mm. it's I find it hilarious because I have no idea what he was thinking. He probably genuinely thinks that this is going to be a really really big boost for his career. I have never, ever seen, and I know we don't want to treat politics like a game and stuff, but I've never seen a politician's career go so far down the drain hole so quickly. Mm. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's a very weird one. I, I remember I was, I was actually on FaceTime to my girlfriend in the morning and, uh, and I saw this and I just absolutely burst out laughing, not because of the like political implications, but just because I want to see him eat a kangaroo testicle. But, um, <laughs> I, it's it's ah uh, it's very weird. I mean, the I, the people I feel sorry for is his constituents and his staff who are going to have a very very difficult next couple of months. Um, I it's very bizarre. I mean, the case that we cross reference this week is um, was Nadine Doris, um, 
going on to I'm a Celeb. But I guess the difference is, is that Matt Hancock was very in the limelight due to COVID and he also... Well, the difference yeah. is that Nadine Dory's probably conceded that she had no hope of a, you know, a career in Cabinet. And I think one benefit that's come out of this is that way on the other side of the world, um, Matt Hancock is going to be as far away from the Cabinet as he could be. He's quite <laughs> literally, in the words of Malcolm Tucker, so backbench, he's quite literally fallen off. Yeah, but I... In a weird way, I'm actually going to play a bit of devil's advocate because I know that you think that this is stupid and that, you know, Matt Hancock is just, you know, being an absolute wanker because of this. But I, I'm going to play a bit of devil's advocate and say, do you think that it might be slightly interesting to see the kind of the man behind the politician? Because there's, you know, we see this kind of like media spotlight of of Matt Hancock, you know, running, going on a run saying, get your vaccine and all that sort of stuff. But like, the one thing I will owe to the jungle is that because of how isolated people are, you do get to see people in their real light. And so I'm very much interested to see what Matt Hancock is like, you know, in that kind of scenario. Because let's be real, he's not going to be comfortable. You know, he's going to have celebrities there who are going to get pissed off with him, are going to bring up COVID, because, they're going to bring up Johnson. Yeah, they're going to bring up Johnson. We're going to bring up politics. You know, Anton Deck are going to absolutely slam the fuck out of him. <laughs> and I just want to see how he reacts to that because he's not in the safety. Uh, it's weird to say this, the safety of politics. He's on reality TV now. So I'm actually quite almost interested. So I will say thank you, Matt Hancock, for making my next few months very interesting and in seeing what you're like as a human. Not going to change how I feel about you, but you know. I, 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 yeah, see, the thing is, I, I hope this doesn't make me seem out of touch, but um, yeah, probably am out of touch. Mm. But um, I don't really watch I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. I'm really, really squeamish. I can't, I don't like insects. Really, really makes me feel funny. The thing that's kept me glued to the TV has been the Cricket World Cup. So if mm. you notice a tinge of an Australian accent, that's why, because I've just been watching Australian commentators repeat themselves about ball going towards a wooden bat. But Matt Hancock, um, this is an idea that, the, the thing that you're citing, this is an idea that he cited as well, that in order to get ideas out there, um, you know, to speak to young people, uh, we we need to go on to reality TV and we shouldn't look no, down upon reality that, TV. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that he's like, it's a, it's a good thing that, you know, he's trying to speak to younger people. In fact, I don't even think young people even watch I'm a Celebrity. I predominantly think it's, you know, very sort of like, because it was mainly like a two thousands thing, so really you're kind of seeing a lot of. Oh, oh, okay. So you want to see the man behind the politician, sort of. Yeah, no, no, no. What's it like and stuff like that? Yeah, no, yeah. no. Again, he's not. He's not going to be. He's going to be on his best behaviour. He's on national telly. I think every Saturday. That's when it comes on, right? Yeah, that's different. That's different. No, it's every day. Mate. Oh, is it every it's day? A, okay, fine. Yeah, no, yeah so he's, you he's, are he's, documented. It's kind of the same thing as like Big Brother in terms of that you because people are isolated because they've got no contact with the with the outside. It's like a it's a very much you kind of see them for who they really are. Now I know technically anybody can say anything, and you know he could try and sort of still be very politician like, and you know. But I, but I, I think I, that's going to backfire on him pretty badly because I think. This decision by him to go on I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here is so far, like, it's, it, shows, it shows a complete lack of self-awareness. His perception of what other people think of him, what the general public think of him, is so far from what the general public actually think of him. 
So I think it's actually going to make him look worse. I don't I think. Also- it's- I don't think it's an eye into the eye of what what a politician is and what a politician is like in the background. I don't think it's that whatsoever. Um, I think there are other ways of finding out what a politician is like oh, yeah. in the background. Like, you know, I don't know, diaries. He's, he's, I think he's planning on publishing his diaries called Pandemic Diaries. Um, me a politician for god's sake you know, yeah, go, really, you know go and speak to your constituency mp and see what he's see what they're like no i do concede that it's not it's not the best way to do it i'm, 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 just, I'm just i don't know i'm just really interested i, I watched i must live when i was younger and so it's quite interesting but he also went on that um oh christ what was it called Sorry, can, but... can we cover this argument that he's made by the way of yeah. oh I, I know you're talking about you're talking about the podcast with um the chap uh, of dragon's den yeah 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 um can we talk about this idea that he said we we, we shouldn't look down upon reality tv if we if we want to get our message out there we should go on there and talk about certain issues in order to speak speak to younger people and talk about certain ideas well, again, what I do you think I... about that well, again, I don't think that reality TV is necessarily inherently like young people centric. Like, I, I, as simple facts is, and, and someone can, you know, tweet me and say, oh, you know, you've got that wrong. But I don't think actually that many people are watching TV, to be honest. I think the age of sitting down and watching reality TV, like I'm a celebrity, is kind of is falling off a bit. And Netflix and the kind of like, you know, things about like Jeffrey Dahmer or something that seem to be taking over. But, but, um, but do you reckon, do you reckon if, you know, our goal with this podcast is to get younger people talking about politics. I just said younger people um, <laughs> is to get people around our age talking about politics. Do you reckon in order to do that, we should, we should, we should try to get on reality TV. Uh, well, no, not really. I exactly. Don't, don't, don't it's, it's just bullshit. I think he just needs the money. I think he genuinely needs the money. He needs a payout. That's why he's doing this. That's my opinion. And it's a joke. He's he's an idiot. Yeah, well, I, I, this, the annoying thing is, is that, you know, people will will build up perceptions about politicians more generally as a result of his action of going on to I'm a celebrity. And it kind of disappoints me because obviously there are very good MPs across the house who um you know are very concerned about the constituents and are very sort of making sure that they want to try and represent them in the best way possible and you know give back to the fact that they've you know voted them in and practically given them a job but i know matt hancock doesn't seem to be too bothered about that so um yeah uh as i said as i said i'm very sorry for his constituents um, yeah i, I do but... feel sorry for his constituents um and it's also a fact that he's going to take an mp's salary whilst he's, you know, all the way on the other side of the world. And get it's, paid up by ITV. And he'll get paid up by ITV. I don't know if he's going to declare that. <laughs> Hopefully he will. He um, won't declare it because there's technically no need to declare it, but it, it will be, he will get paid up. And he probably will have got a bigger payout because he would have been taken away from his job. Um, just, we didn't even say this, but he has been suspended or he's lost the Tory party whip. So Yes, but Nadine um, Dorries had that when, when she went on. She had, that for six, she had that for six months. But um, is, is, do you reckon he's going to get it back when he, when he comes back? I don't know. Uh, well, I don't even think he'll win his seat at this rate. But um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. It remains sort of... A little bit clouded, but also Nadine Doris wasn't as probably prolific and high up within the kind of limelight as Matt Hancock is at this moment. 
um, yeah. that then you know, not many people did know who Nadine Doris uh, was. I mean, Nadine practically, you know, hands her whole career to Boris anyway. Um, I, you know, Matt Hancock existed before Boris came into power. Um, I, d I don't think most people anyway know, other than the person that was on I'm a Celeb, even if they're not interested in politics, I I don't think even after all this, they know who Nadine Doris is. I think only people who joke about her on Twitter mm. know, who, know who Nadine Doris is. So well, she hasn't really built up that much of a profile she, either. She's been, she's been joking about Matt Hancock on Twitter as well. So I guess what, oh, what, what, what goes around comes around. But on this note, I think we're going to end this, this episode here before we start spiralling about I'm a celebrity and start talking about squeamish stuff that Kartik's obviously going to start sort of <laughs> wanting to Fine. gag to. Um, <laughs> uh, thank, you, thank you very much for listening to uh, this episode. As I said, we're hopefully going to have a very interesting episode uh, coming up soon, so please keep this on your radar. Share with friends, family, etc. Uh, give us a rating on Spotify as well. Uh, and I think that all that's left to be said is my name's James Table. And my name's Kartik Sawney. And thank you very much for watching, uh, listening to episode 12 of Politics on Draft, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.